Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. Painters struggle is they see things literally. And when they can't disconnect from that literal way of looking at a cloud, tree, a car, anything, they're in trouble because they're only looking at that one thing and they don't see the orchestration of the whole, all the parts. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm sharing an episode from the archive. It's all about design and composition with Mark Eanes. In the conversation, you'll learn the difference between design and composition, the basic elements of design, and then we walk through each of the seven principles of design and talk in depth about what they are and how to make sure you have them, plus a whole lot more. This conversation gets at the fundamental language of what it means to be a visual artist. And whether you paint landscape or still life or portraiture or non-objective abstraction, grab a notebook and settle in for a conversation that I hope will help you in your painting journey. And as always, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 28 for show notes. All right, here we go. Hi, Mark. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's really great to be back here with you. So we are talking about design and composition today, but people have probably heard the terms design and composition and may use them interchangeably, but they're not necessarily. So what's the difference between design and composition? You're right. Those two terms can be used synonymously. One might say, oh, that's a great design that I'm seeing, and someone else might say, that's a great composition I'm seeing. And they both would be correct. (laughs) But there is a distinction. So here's the easiest way for me to describe that, explain that. The design is a few things. It's the idea, perhaps, in an artist's mind or the creator's mind. Perhaps an architect is ready to design a home and has some ideas about what that design will look like. A painter might have an idea about what he or she wants to achieve in a given painting or a design, same with tapestry, etc., and they have this design in their mind. And of course, then the design is also the end product. Composition is the utilization or the arrangement of the visual elements in service of design. So as we describe these visual elements like line, texture, value, etc., we know that those elements are in service of composing a design. And at the end, you have both things. You have a composition of the elements, if you will. With an architect, it's windows, doors, and walls. And with a painter, it's these other elements. But that's the distinction, Kelly. So then, why is it important for someone who is interested in learning to paint? Vincent van Gogh wrote to his brother Theo once, and he said, Dear Theo, you have no idea the sheer terror of staring at the blank canvas and having it stare back at you and say you don't know anything. So for a lot of (laughs) painters, and even those who have been doing this for a while, that blank canvas, that blank service can be intimidating. And where and how to enter, then once you've entered it, once you've put something down, how to navigate that space, 
how to see that pictorial space, how to figure out where do I go next? What's my next move? Is this balanced? Is it unbalanced? Do I have any idea of how I can create a piece that is unified? You might step back from a painting, Kelly, and think, oh God, I don't know where to go. It's just a mess. I don't know what move to make. And by understanding the language of design and what's involved in terms of these visual elements and how to arrange them or compose them in such a way as to create a harmonious, cohesive whole, that's something else. And to my mind, this is what art students who go through training learn. And by looking at a lot of art, that's obviously one way to see just what others have been up to to achieve that. When we first go into painting as beginners, we think about painting as... I'm going to make an abstract, or I'm going to paint a landscape, or I'm going to paint a house with trees behind it. We think about the thing, even if it's non-representational. And yet, it's not about the thing. Painting is this. Painting is design and composition. The other thing could be a photograph. Not that there isn't design and composition in photography, but this is really the language of the art form of painting. Correct. And where a lot of painters struggle is that they have a difficult time. And let's say they're a figurative painter just for our conversation right now. A lot of painters have a difficult time seeing the things out there objectively. For instance, I have my first assignment with my students, my painting class at CCA. I crumple large paper bags. I put them on a stand. I light them. And that is the first subject, the still life of large crumpled paper bags. But the lesson is not about paper bags. The lesson is, let's talk about value, let's talk about planes, let's talk about light and shadow, let's talk about composition. And I say to them, we're not painting bags today. We're drawing and painting shape and pattern and design. I had a student once who was painting an interior scene, and one of the main elements in her painting, Kelly, was a chair. And she was halfway through the painting, and she was very carefully painting the legs of the chair, you see, unaware of how her moves were or were not integrating into the compositional whole. She was just obsessed with getting the legs of that chair correct, if you could imagine. I came around, I said, I'm going to stop you here, please. I want you to scrub this out a little bit. And now I want you to focus, when you get to the chair, on the spaces between the legs of the chair. Do not look at the legs of the chair. Look at where it sits in space and how that beautiful abstraction, (laughs) there's that word again, of the space between the legs is really where it's at. And then realize the space to the left of the chair and to the right of the chair. In other words, it's just one element of many. And where painters struggle is they see things literally. And when they can't disconnect from that literal way of looking at a cloud, tree, a car, anything, they're in trouble. Because they're only looking at that one thing and they don't see the orchestration of the whole, all the parts. So no matter your type of painting, if you want to be a painter and if you want to strengthen your paintings, whether you're figurative, non-representational, design and composition are important to learn. Absolutely. It is the language. It would be the equivalent of saying to a musician who wants to really better their craft and they want to learn to read music, the instructor would say, well, let's work on our scales. We have to work on our scales to learn this piece by Bach. It doesn't matter if it's Bach or Miles Davis. We need to understand the language, and that's what this is. This conversation, it's going to have a lot of terminology. So get your notebooks, get a pencil. (laughs) Um, And so first off, the first sort of set of terminology is, 
and you've already heard Mark mention this a little bit. So the visual elements and then the principles of design. But could you first walk us through what the visual elements are? Sure. One way to think of the visual elements, they are the visual vocabulary that an artist uses in his or her piece. And there are seven of them, Kelly. Uh, line is one. That line is a big one, though, because it goes all the way back to the caves. They use line to create those beautiful images. Shape. Shape is huge as well. Always and everywhere we see shape. Value is critical. Value is the lightness or darkness of those shapes. So not only do we see shape always and everywhere, we see value always and everywhere. And then we see color, and we see color everywhere. The difficulty with seeing color is that seeing color for its value can be tricky. Like, is that particular orange or red or green a light tone or a dark tone or a mid-tone? These kinds of things. To continue, space is a visual element. Mass or volume. And then finally, texture. There's no hierarchy here, but I would say if I had to, I would say that line, shape, value, and color are right there as essential. Does a painting need to have all seven of those? No, not at all. Good example, Mark Rothko, the painter. He uses shape, he uses value, he uses color, he's creating space. Texture, not so much. They're fairly smooth in their look. I mean, one could argue that it has a smooth surface, so in that case. And then mass and volume, again, not so much. It could be because those are fairly flat shapes that he's working with. And you might have someone like a Giacometti, the sculptor, who when he painted used a lot of line, and he was working with value quite a bit, but he was really involved with the mass of the line building up into those volumes. Color, not so much. It just depends on who you're looking at. And also, I should say, Mark has a whole episode on color, and I will link to that in the show notes. It's great. So after the visual elements, we're going to talk about the guiding principles of design, and we're going to step through each of those individually. But first, could you walk us through the seven guiding principles of design? Sure. And as I do this, there's no particular importance of order, although there are a few that I think are really important to understand. So let's begin. One is balance. Things need to be balanced. One is emphasis. One is visual weight. Another is hierarchy. And then there is direction, simplicity, and unity. And then actually under design factors, the visual elements is a factor so that all those visual elements that we just spoke about, they become factors of design. So one might say that there's actually eight, if you include that last one. Starting off, what is balance? Balance is critical. If a viewer is looking at a work of art and feels as though they have to tilt their head or their body, or if a majority of many of those visual elements are, let's say, on the left-hand side and not much is happening on the right-hand side of the design, they may feel that it's really heavy, weighted to the left. So one of the really basic illustrations on this note, Kelly, is to draw a seesaw like we were on when we were kids. Imagine your composition is divided right down the middle. If there's too much going on in the left half, then the seesaw is going to be out of balance. If there's too much going on the right, the same thing is true. Imagine if I put a big red square on the left side of my design as a minimal abstract piece. Something has to happen on that right half 
to balance that big red square. It might be a dark line, it might be texture, it might be some other element. But if it's not quite enough, it's still going to feel heavy on that left side because of that big red square having so much visual weight. And one last thing, the spaces in between shapes, they have visual weight as well. And a lot of people don't understand that. They're always thinking about the thing or the shape and not what we call the interspaces between them. So balance is that idea of the viewer or the artist who's creating the piece feeling that there's the equilibrium that is harmonious. So you mentioned left to right. If something is heavier on the bottom, is there a difference between balance between up and down versus left and right? Correct. So especially if you have an orientation in your pictorial space that's similar to landscape, imagine a rectangular that's more landscape, then that's also true if there's too much weight at the bottom or the top. So that's when I get into this um, situation with my artists and students that I work with. Eventually, when we're looking at our work to decide if it's balanced, Kelly, the first thing I have them do, close one eye, and I have them look at the left half of the piece, compare it to the right half. Then I have them look at the top half versus the bottom half. Again, they're closing one eye and they're blocking with their hands, so they can only see. And I'm saying, well, does the left and right feel harmonious? Then eventually we might get to the quadrants. I might say, you know that lower right quadrant? There's just too much weight there. I can't get out of there. I'm stuck. You see, this is how we start to read the work, which is so critical to understanding what to do next to correct these problems. Okay, so then second in the list is emphasis. And I'm going to mention actually the next two factors because they're connected, if I might. In fact, there are three factors connected, so we'll do one at a time and together. So emphasis. I spoke about that big red square on the left half of a given piece. I'm emphasizing color in that regard. So emphasis is deciding which elements are going to have the most emphasis. So it might be color. I might want strong lines running through this design. A very strong line has a certain emphasis. I might want to emphasize texture. And I might want to emphasize more than one. I might want to emphasize line and texture. So these are what I call attention-grabbing elements. They grab our attention. That's another way of looking at it. Well, the next design factor is visual weight. So these elements that I'm emphasizing, whether it's color or line or value or what have you, they have a certain amount of visual weight. Let's say I have that big red square again on the left half of my design, and on the right half of the design, I have the same shape and size square, but it's beige. Guess which of those elements has the most visual weight? Well, we know the red square does. So the elements that you place in there have a certain amount of visual weight, and that's when we decide to emphasize whether they have equal visual weight or not. And in deciding that, we've chosen a hierarchy of importance, and there's our fourth design factor. Now, hierarchy is really critical, Kelly. Hierarchy is the artist's decision as to what's really important in this design. And one thing that I say to my artists and students is that if everything is important, nothing is important. If there is no hierarchy of importance, you can have cacophony. Here's an analogy. An orchestra comes out to perform a piece. The conductor comes out. She's ready to conduct. And we've all seen this where the music begins and the conductor is bringing up certain sections to be louder and other sections are being quiet or not playing at all. This is how the piece is orchestrated, that there's hierarchy among the musicians. 
as to who's going to have the opportunity to play soft, loud, or not at all. Well, if the orchestra decides they don't like this conductor, they really don't like her for whatever reasons, or they're just being weird, and they decide to mutiny, and they all play full blast, it's just cacophony. This is true in painting. Now, the painting, Kelly, can be quite complex with many different moving parts. But again, still, if everything is having equal importance, it can be a recipe for cacophony. And then the viewer doesn't know where to go. And we've all seen busy works of art that we just think, oh, God, it's just so busy. So that's hierarchy. I've heard the term dominance. Would dominance be sort of under hierarchy or would it be emphasis? I don't personally use the term dominance, but I can see how one would use that. And it would be the same as emphasizing a strong visual way to create hierarchy. All you have to do is start looking at paintings and you'll see. So there's focal points in a given piece. Those focal points are happening because the artist chose to give a certain emphasis to a visual weight to create hierarchy. Here's a great example. I was just looking at a piece by Vermeer. It's a woman reading a letter. She's in an interior scene. She's reading a letter. The light is pouring through the window onto her face and onto that letter. So clearly, that little area of the painting where she's holding the letter close to her eyes, that's a focal point. There's no getting around it. And there's strong contrast between lights and darks in that given part of the painting, which emphasizes that, as well as the visual factor of her reading this letter. The wall behind her is just a neutral blank area. It's just a neutral plane, you see, as are some of the other elements. So that's just one example. Now, you can have more than one focal point. You can have a major focal point and others that are sort of supporting actors. So here we come back to hierarchy again. If you have a play and all the actors come out on the stage, some have the lead roles, some have supporting roles, and some of the actors may not have much in the way of lines at all. They kind of stand around like furniture. But the ensemble needs to happen in order for that play to be successful. It's true in a painting as well. Sometimes when you're learning to paint, it can be kind of overwhelming. There's so many decisions. And one of the things that happens is, I speak from personal experience, you just say like, well... I'll figure that out later. Right. (laughs) So, and then you wonder why your painting isn't what you hoped it would be. So how important is it to, at some point, really know the hierarchy? Here's one way to look at it, and here's how I like to teach painters, whether they're painting from observation or abstractly. Begin as a stonemason, end as a jeweler. So if you are beginning... To start a painting, we have a term in the teaching of art, which is to block in the masses. What that means is to go from general to specific. It's the same idea as start as a stonemason and end as a jeweler. If you are starting to paint little details at the opening part of your painting, you're probably going to run into trouble. The reason is you're only looking at little sections at a time. You're not taking in the whole pictorial space, the picture plane. So if you start blocking in with large shapes in a general way, in terms of color, shape, value, then at the outset, you have this abstraction, and you'll have a realization at the beginning phase of the painting, okay, are these elements somewhat harmonious so far? If so, let me break it down a little further. So again, if you're thinking general to specific. It's a way of constructing the piece at the outset in a large format way, and that is to say 
as a stonemason might. Then as the painting progresses, you can see, ah, here I want a smaller detail, and here I want a tiny bit of this and a little bit of that. If you reverse that, you're going to be in trouble because you're only seeing the precious little areas. And this is something that's interesting about painters. We all know about the precious areas. Oh, I love this area. I love how that brushwork is. Oh, that color is so beautiful right there. And then you go over to this part of the painting and you create another little precious area. Oh, that's so beautiful. And then after a while, the painting becomes filled with these little precious areas. But if you haven't pulled back to see how all the parts make the whole, it doesn't work. You can have all the precious areas in the world. You can have all the beautiful colors in the world. You can have all the beautiful shapes in the world, but they, if they're not cohesive, if they weren't working integrally as a whole, it doesn't work. Not the same. You see, getting to it later is too late. The mindset in the beginning is, let me orchestrate these large parts right at the get-go. Even if it's loose, even if it's lots that are going to happen, let me at least try to make sure that that first series of moves makes sense together, not isolated. And that also makes me think that when you're learning to paint, some of it is learning the style that you like, how to sort of reverse engineer it so that you can make some of those bigger, important decisions up front. It's learning actually how to make those decisions up front yes. in a way that permits you to do that design work later. I mean, through the whole thing, but that that actually will potentially take some thinking about how you work. Obviously, everyone works differently, but a couple of general remarks on this issue can be made. First of all, most of us don't know where we're going at any time. We're just doing. Flannery O'Connor, the great Southern writer, she said, I view writing as an act of discovery. So if you embrace that idea, then that's what we're doing. We're putting something down. We step back. We like it. We don't like it. We make other moves. Some are good. Some are not so great. Some work. Some don't. Another quote from Agnes Martin is that when we have our missteps, our mistakes, and our failures, we can get upset. It can stop us. But it's important for the artist to understand that the misstep is just the next step to the next thing. So you make a move. You step back. It doesn't look good. You have to scrape it out. You have to wipe it. Now you make another move. Maybe it's better. Maybe it's worse. And so it goes. But all is in service of composing or arranging the visual elements into a cohesive whole. And as you keep stepping back from the piece, you look at it, you might squint, and you go, oh, it's starting to come together now. The artist who only looks at little areas and doesn't see the whole picture, they're the ones who are going to suffer the most because they're caught up in those little areas, Kelly. And it's about stepping back to see the sum of all the parts into a cohesive whole. Richard Diebencourt, I had to now paraphrase because I don't have the quote in front of me, but said something like, if you remove any of the separate parts or elements from the piece, it falls apart or doesn't work. And Matisse said the same thing, that every element that is in that design is there for a good reason. So if you end up painting a salt and pepper shaker on a large interior kitchen scene on the table, it's there for a reason. It's not just because I see a salt and pepper shaker on the table, which is what a lot of artists do. Just like that student of mine who was focusing on the legs of the chair, they only focus on the salt and pepper shaker. They don't realize that those are two visual elements that have to be in the cohesive whole. Artists always hear about learning to see. Is this mm -hmm. part of learning to see? Very much, very much. The key to me, Kelly, is studying art. I can't be any simpler, any more plain spoken than that. And it's not my business who people look at and study. 
mm-hmm. not just Western art, the art of the Asia, art of Africa's, the South Americas, indigenous art, you name it. It's only through the study of art of all kinds that we can learn. You study the greats. Most people, when they go to museums, for instance, they spend about three to four seconds looking at a piece of artwork, and then they move on after they looked at the label to see who did it. So that's fine, but the artist cannot afford to do that. It behooves you to really study it. What's going on here? What are they doing? Why am I so enamored with this piece? It may be the way they arrange color. It may be their use of line. It may be the spatial play. By looking at it and studying it, we can absorb it and then bring those lessons and synthesize them into our own practice. That's been my experience, and I always encourage artists to do so. Would you recommend, then, if someone is trying to learn composition and design, especially when they're starting out, to just have the list and look at something that really resonates with them? Because this stuff is not intuitive. Right. You know, you don't decide to become an artist and then, ta-da, you understand these things. Like, it takes learning to sense them almost. So would you recommend having a list, the list and being like, okay, how do they use line? How do they use shape, et cetera? How do they then use balance, emphasis, visual weight, et cetera? Now, not everyone can make their way to a museum, but if they can, I suggest they do so. And let's say that they've listened to this podcast and they have written down the visual elements and these factors of design. Imagine them taking this list or even just in their head, to the museum, and now they stand in a gallery filled with paintings. Now, that's going to be overwhelming, first of all. So I always say to the artists and students, stand in the middle of the gallery and turn, and when a painting calls you to come and look at it, that's the one you need to spend time with. You can't spend time with each painting. And by going to that one painting that you really are attracted to, then look at it. What's going on? How are they arranging the shapes? How are they using color, et cetera, et cetera. That's how it begins, you see. And no one is telling you, go look at this artist or that artist. You're figuring that out because you resonate. There's a resonance. I'm not going to say that you're going to paint like Rembrandt if you look at Rembrandt. You're not. (laughs) And you're not going to paint like uh, Kathy Colvitz if you see a Kathy Colvitz. But there might be something there you can take away, you see. And that's the key. Now, Absent that, the internet is an amazing resource. But also, there are these things called books, and one can build a library. And by building a library, you have the next best thing right there in your studio. When I was a young student, Kelly, 22, at UC Santa Barbara, I went to my mentor's studio, Irma Cavett, great teacher. She took us all to her studio, which was a big deal. And she was in the midst of a painting or two. And there in her rather spacious studio were all these art books laid out and turned to certain pages. She was a brilliant artist, and yet she had her favorite artists surrounding her, talking to her, helping her, making her think. So it's how we absorb and synthesize. That's how we learn. A musician listens to music. A writer reads other writers. There's nothing new about any of this. Architects look at other architects. So that's the key. You know, find out what work you resonate with and spend time with it and don't just glance at it. That's how I learned. I learned more from looking at many artists than I had great teachers, but that's where I really learned. Studying art to this day. And that's the beautiful thing, Kelly. It never ends. 
I have a grandmother and I had a mom who were both painters. Mm. And so we spent a lot of time in galleries and I hated it. I actually hated it because my mom, who was an artist, would look at every painting because she had that knowledge and she was doing the studying. And But I just assumed you had to look at every painting and I was exhausted. I didn't know anything oh, about art. Oh, my. And then finally, when I gave myself permission to stand in the middle of the room, find what connects with me and sort of not disregard, but spend my energy where I wanted to, not where I thought I was supposed to totally changed everything for me. And that happened later in life. I'm glad I figured it out. Yes. And that's hierarchy. You chose what was important because when everything is important, nothing's important. And you leave exhausted. And you live exhausted. <laughs> and you haven't taken away much, you see. I used to have an assignment with my students to spend one hour in front of their favorite piece of work. They had to search long and hard to fall in love with that one piece of work. But once they did, I said, good, spend an hour with it, and then we'll talk. Who spends even 20 minutes in front of a painting, let alone an hour? But one thing about the Internet, which I will mention because I – working on this language of design now and doing lots of research, uh, is brilliant as a tool. Here's an example. Let's say you want to know more about contemporary African-American women artists. Type it in. It all comes up. And then you're down a rabbit hole for as long as you want to be. And you can create files. I've got over 250 files right now of artists that I'm researching for this course. And it's brilliant. Let's say you have a book and you're looking at artists that you like. Let's say it's, I don't know, Cezanne. Turn the image upside down. Look at it as an abstraction. Now, this is key because, again, it has to do with seeing things not literally but objectively. So I'm a big fan when I have my students look at artwork to turn it upside down and just see it for its design. Pure and simple. Really a useful tool. So you just mentioned hierarchy. So I'm just so that listeners know where we are in the list. Balance, emphasis, visual weight, hierarchy. Correct. And now the next three – would be direction, simplicity, and unity. So yes. what is direction? So direction is important. Why? The artist, in arranging or composing these visual elements, directs the eye throughout the pictorial space or the picture plane. One of my teachers said that a really good artist takes the viewer on a journey throughout the picture plane, the design, and does not let them exit. So let's discuss direction. Line directs, obviously. When you use line, that directs the eye. Shape has a direction. Every shape that you put down, as small as a brushwork or as large as some form or shape, that has direction. Every shape has direction. Let's say you have a painting of the human figure. Well, the human figure has, obviously, the torso. The torso has a direction up and down. The limbs, the arms and legs, they have a direction depending on how the figure is posed. So those shapes of the figure, that's directing the eye because every shape has a direction. The spaces in between, those interspaces are what we call negative shapes. They have a direction. So even the spaces that are in between the shapes of the things, they direct the eye. Then the use of the visual elements, if you're using color here and over there, that is directing the eye. So a lot of the visual elements, Kelly, direct the eye throughout the design. That's visually how we move through that space. And we can get stuck if the artist hasn't pulled it off. It's like, oh, there's that big red square again. I can't get out of the big red square. There's nothing to direct me away from it, you see. So yes, direction takes us on a journey throughout the picture plane. Right, because what I hear you saying is that from earlier in the conversation, 
you don't want how someone looks at your painting to be looking at everything frenetic because then there's nothing to look at. But you also don't want them to look at something so long and so hard that they get stuck there. That it's a balance of moving their eye through the painting and, and like keeping it moving, but not getting it stuck and not being it static. Correct. And another way to think about this also, Kelly, is that when a viewer looks at a painting for the first time, it doesn't matter if the design is relatively simple or complex. They see the whole before they see the parts. This is key. Instantly, they see the whole before they look at the parts. It has a cohesiveness that is so tight and clear. Even if it's a loose painting, there's a cohesiveness. And that's the first thing the viewer sees. It's like, oh, what a beautiful painting. Think about it. When you step in front of a beautiful painting, you think to yourself, what a beautiful painting. You're not saying, oh, what a beautiful uh, way she painted that slipper on the, on the woman. No, they don't see that. <laughs> they see the whole thing. That's what we're looking at. It probably sounds different in everyone else's head. Like for me, it's like a, oh my gosh. I think there's actual words that I hear in my brain for something that has really beautiful design. And I hadn't thought about that until you said mm. that right now, that there is really an expression. that It's like you feel it in your body mm -hmm. of how well they have done it. And the best of the best, and there's only, I think, I'm going to say a handful, and here I'm going to be specific. There's some artwork that transcend their thingness. I saw a Vermeer once when I was right out of college. It was the first Vermeer I ever saw. It was a small interior scene of a woman in light, and it transcended it being a painting. It became more than that. It was not an object. It was a, an alternate reality in front of me that was magical. I have no other word to describe it. And occasionally we see that. A good Rothko can do that, you know. I mean, there's just innumerable, but yes. Art has that ability to transcend what it actually is as a thing, and then it becomes an experience. So simplicity is next on the list, but a painting doesn't have to be simple. So what is simplicity? This is a tricky one, because most people, when they see the term simplicity as a design factor, they may think, well, my paintings are far from simple. There's lots of moving parts. I like a lot of brushwork, etc., or I like a lot of shapes. Okay, all good and well, but let's break it down. So on the one end of the spectrum, let's say you might have someone like a Mirandi who has these very simple little still lifes that he painted all his life. Now that's truly simplicity at its best. He pared it all down. However, one of the things I like to do with my artists and students, so it's possible to take a complex painting, turn it upside down, and using what I call structural lines, Kelly, vertical, horizontal, diagonal, and sometimes arcs. And by using just those structural lines, and I have them do it with tracing paper if they're on a, in a book, they can break down that composition in five to seven shapes. I've even done this with a de Kooning painting that's all abstract expressionism. By squinting my eyes and I can see what he's doing with value and shape, and I can break a painting down in about five to seven major planes or shapes. The point here is that even in arts, history of complex arrangements, and many of them are, let's be clear, many of paintings are very complex. If you look very carefully, there is an underlying structure to that painting that has at its core a simplicity to it. Now, back in the Renaissance, for instance, just to give you an example, they would use the golden section. It is an arrangement of shapes, primarily rectangles and squares, 
and arcs that unifies it right at the get-go. And the Renaissance architects, the Greek architects, would use this for the buildings, but painters would use this uh, mathematical geometric design to create a substructure. And then with that scaffold, they could put buildings, people, clouds, you name it, because it all unified into that structure. There's another one called the rule of the thirds, where you take a rectangle and divide it in thirds on the horizontal and the vertical axes, and many of the visual elements place themselves along those grids. Now, I'm not suggesting that the majority of art does this, but for centuries it did. And if you give credence to the idea that each artist has looked to the artist before them, then that lineage holds true even to today. So even today, if you look at a lot of art, whether the artist is conscious of it or not, there is a simpler structural scaffold that can unify all these parts. I don't care how many moving parts there are. So I hope I've explained this to you because it is a tricky one. People think if I have a lot of things going on in my painting, there's no way I can be simple. But that's not true. Without some understanding from the artist that I need to unify all these parts, again, we come back to cacophony. Again, we come back to the lack of hierarchy. The very fact that if you have hierarchy, that helps you create simplicity within your designs, even if they're complex. Because once again, you're deciding visual emphasis, you're deciding visual weight, and by creating a hierarchy, you already have simplified some of this complex information. So you just mentioned this word, but it's on the list. So what is unity? Everything that we've discussed, all the other factors, balance, emphasis, visual weight, hierarchy, direction, simplicity, they are all in service of a unity. It has to be unified that quote by Richard Dimacornis, in this successful painting, everything is integral. All the parts belong to the whole. If you remove an aspect or element, you are removing its wholeness. And there is a succinct definition of unity. So let's go back to the orchestra that's being conducted. If one by one the musicians mutiny and they leave the stage, the wholeness is gone. All the integral parts are not there. The same is true in our paintings. If you are using, for instance, Kelly, all the visual elements in your painting, line, shape, value, color, space, mass, and texture, and that's important for your design, and you remove texture, it doesn't work. If you remove the line element, all of a sudden it's starting to fall apart. So the unity is what we've been striving to achieve all along. It is the arrangement of all the elements into a cohesive whole. That's unity. And the piece feels unified. So how does someone who's just starting out yes. and is just realizing, okay, there's something wrong with this painting. It's not what I wanted it to be. I've heard these things called design composition. I've heard of this. How does someone start learning this? Mm. Well, that's a $64,000 question. Okay. So there historically are many artists who are self-taught. I really need to begin there. That's quite something, if you think about it. They've taken no lessons. They have no mentors. They've never worked with anyone. They're just, they do their thing. And there's a whole category or genre of those artists historically. Sometimes they use the term folk art or outsider art. So there are a whole bunch of folks historically who just figure this out on their own. And they have a great time. And sometimes the work is brilliant. Not always, but sometimes. So I think that's true in all the arts. So I just want to start with that, because there is that population. And then they just figure it out. 
So that's one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, let's just talk about the spectrum. You have people who decide, you know what, I need to have formal training. So now I'm going to go to college. I might go to a junior college, a state college, an art institute, but I want to take classes. I want to work with professors. I want the homework. I want the rigor. I want the language. And I'm going to put in four to six years and do this. That is the other end of the spectrum. Then you have a lot of people in between. So I have been fortunate to be able to work with students at the college who want that formal training, Kelly, because that's what I enjoy doing. But I've also been fortunate to work with many artists through online courses or in person here in my studio who did not have formal training, and they want to learn. We're in the age of the internet, and people such as myself, and I can mention other teachers here in the Bay Area, there's many of them, Nick Wilton is one, people are coming to them and they're taking workshops. So this is the other way to learn. And people are doing this nationally and internationally. I have artists who have worked with me who are now working with artists over in Europe online. That's brilliant. Think about that. And then they create communities. This is the other part of it. So Maria and I have been fortunate, Kelly. Uh, our language of color course just took off, and now we have this national and international community of hundreds of artists who are sharing their work, their ideas, their problem solving. So I would say there's lots of opportunities out there for anyone who wants to learn. Marie and I host a discussion on our YouTube channel, and we call it Coffee and Tea, where we just discuss these kinds of things. And one of the more recent topics was, what is it to become your own best teacher? We spent a better part of 40 minutes discussing this, and we discussed it with other artists recently as well. So that's a big conversation. What is it to become your own best teacher? I didn't learn perspective from my teachers in college one and two and three point perspective. I didn't really learn it. So I wanted to learn it because I needed to understand it. And I went out and got some books, came home, cracked open the books, started doing the exercises. And now I understand and can teach one and two and three point perspective. So yes, be your own teacher, search it out. It's very possible. You can find more about Mark Eanes at his website, markeens.com, and on Facebook and Instagram, including his classes, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Mark. Thank you, Kelly. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. You're a great interviewer because you love art, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast for this special archive edition. For show notes and to find links to Mark Eanes' work and classes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 28. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get practical advice from today's best painters sent straight to your inbox. Thank you to everyone listening and supporting the show through the Podcast Art Club on Patreon. You make this show possible, and I love seeing your great work through the 20 for 20 Art Challenge Spring Edition. An extra shiny thank you to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Pam Lyle, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting!